The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Good morning, church. Uh, Love it. Love seeing you people, human beings. Again, uh, if you're with us online, good to have you. Uh, I I miss seeing you. Can't wait to see you at some point. Um, uh, My name is Chris Martin. I'm the lead pastor at Fathom. If I have yet to meet you, thanks for joining with us this morning. Uh, We have a lot to do, so would you please grab your Bibles if you brought them, and I hope you did. Open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. You can open a phone or a tablet to 1 Corinthians 8. Uh, If you're online with us and you don't have a physical Bible, you can Google search 1 Corinthians 8. We'll be uh, reading from the English Standard Version, the ESV. So uh, I want you to see this with your eyes. I can lie to you. The Bible will not. Okay. So I could make this stuff up, but if you're reading your text, that's the check and balance here. Okay. First Corinthians chapter eight, uh, as we open up into uh, chapter eight, chapter eight is a, a, a turning point again in the book of first Corinthians. There are some major movements in this book. The first two sections we have already covered. The first section was on divisions uh, in the church. The second section that we've been on for the last uh, probably six weeks is largely about sexual relationships. So that was awkward doing that online. Uh, I hope uh, it didn't uh, freak anybody out too much, but it was glad to be done with the sexual relationships section. Uh, Today, the third section begins with uh, food sacrificed to idols, which I know, okay, I know for a fact you've just been waiting for this one. Right, because I keep getting emails from y'all worried about whether or not the meat you're picking up at King's Supers has been sacrificed to a demon. Right, like so, I keep I keep hearing this stuff. But but Paul seriously this morning uh, he begins to address a larger topic in the in, that's couched in this idol worship meat conversation about how we inside the church are to deal with our differences and more specifically our disagreements. Okay, Uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but in the first century in this church in Corinth, church people, they were they were pretty dang opinionated. I don't know if you know that. I mean, imagine if they had Facebook and Twitter at that point, it would have been uh, off the chain. But but listen, thank God we've grown out of this. Right. Christians aren't opinionated about anything. Right. Certainly not. So, so even though I doubt that today uh, many of us are worried about meat sacrifice to idols, I'll bet there are plenty of things that we disagree with other Christians on. And Paul today will give us instructions on what to do when we don't agree. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 8 is where we're going to spend our time. Let's look at verse 1. Now, concerning food offered to idols. Okay, let's talk about this just for a second because uh, the demon meat conversation needs to be had because we don't deal with this issue personally, okay? But let me dig into it historically so that we understand what's happening here. The city of Corinth is a Greek province in the Roman Empire and is primarily pagan, okay? They follow pagan gods. They worship pagan Roman and Greek gods and it's filled with temples, There are temples for all of these false gods in the Greco-Roman world. Now, meat was primarily used for their worship purposes in these temples. So imagine that you are a worshiper of some Roman god, some pagan god, and you sacrifice a bull for uh, that god. That's a ton of meat. Like a full cow is a lot of meat. A few years ago, we went in on, uh, I don't know, some of you have done this. We went in on buying a, a side of beef with some other families. We purchased one eighth of a cow 
and it filled our entire freezer with meat. I mean, it's a lot of beef. And in Paul's day, animals are like currency. Animals are like money. They're very expensive. So if you're in Corinth and you sacrifice an animal, a bull or a lamb or something like that, about one third of that animal would be used for the sacrifice. It would be burnt as an offering to that God. The, the next third of that animal uh, w- w- would be uh, used for what's called a temple feast. And so it's, it's like you would, you, would, you would throw this huge party. I mean, imagine a third of a bowl. It's just a lot of meat. So you'd invite all of your friends, all of your crew. You'd throw a party party at Poseidon's temple. You know, bring BYOB, we'll provide the meat, okay? We've got meat covered. You just come and, and eat and we'll be, have a good time. And then the last third of that cow uh, would, be, would, would then be sold in the market at a, at, a, at a diminished price, meat sacrificed to an idol. So you would sell a third, you would eat a third, and you would, you would offer a third to the God. And so uh, this is a big deal specifically for Jews in Paul's day, okay? Because if you're coming from a Jewish background, meat sacrificed to an idol is, is offensive to you. Because in your worldview, when you eat meat that has been sacrificed to an idol, you are in some way like ingesting and inviting that God into your being. To eat that meat meant that you were, you were saying you were connecting with that God or that goddess in a very intimate way. So that's why there was some issues with this whole meat sacrifice to idol thing. So back to our text, okay? Uh, 1 Corinthians 8, we're going to read verses 1 through 3. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. And this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So this is what Paul is saying in these first few verses. He's saying, hey, y'all have knowledge about food offered to idols. You have this knowledge. You have an opinion about this meat, but you need to be careful, okay, He's saying you need to be careful with this knowledge because knowledge, he says, can puff you up. It can puff you up rather than lovingly building others up with that knowledge. You ever know somebody who who might have known a lot of the right answers, but he or she is just a total jerk? You ever know somebody like that who just, they've got all the right knowledge, they've got all the right information, but they're just a total jerk? They're puffed up in their knowledge. That's what Paul's talking about here. He's starting off with, hey, you know something about this whole meat and idol thing. And regardless of where you stand on it, don't let your knowledge puff you up instead of being loving to others. That's what Paul is talking about. He goes on in verse four. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. And that there is but one, there is no God but one. For although there may be so called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So, so in this debate, 
the demon meat debate, okay? The, the church was, was wrestling over this. Can we eat meat sacrificed to idols or not? Is it permissible? Is it okay? And some of the Christians decided, no, it's not okay for us to eat this demon meat. And they decided to avoid it altogether by abstaining from eating that meat sacrificed to idols. And so they essentially became vegetarians. And actually, they would point to the book of Daniel, as, as biblical justification for this, where Daniel, remember, if, if you remember Daniel chapter one, when he and his friends are taken into exile and they decide, hey, we're not gonna eat any of this meat that's been offered to false gods that Nebuchadnezzar is providing for us. Instead, we're just gonna drink water and eat veggies and they call it the Daniel fast and it's like kind of a hip thing in Christendom to kind of <laughs> dig into. But essentially, that's how they decided to live and so that's how these Christians are. We're gonna be like Daniel. We're not eating this demon meat. We're just gonna eat veggies. But then there's other Christians in the church who are saying, hey, those idols, they're not even real. The idols aren't even real. There's only one God. So it's just meat. And they would open up their Bibles and point to Acts chapter 10, where Jesus told Peter, hey, all the food, all this food, it's clean. All things are clean. So meat is meat is meat. And God didn't want, if God didn't want us to, to eat meat, then why would he make cows out of steak? Right? Answer me that, vegans, right? Anybody here? No? Don't raise your hands, okay? So we may not be engaged in that same debate. We not, may not be in that same debate on food uh, sacrifice to idols, but the principles that Paul is about to give us are actually, I think, applicable for when we have differences of opinions as Christians, when we're in disagreement over Things. So let's read verses seven and eight, and then I'm going to start breaking it down. Verse seven, however, not all possess this knowledge. Remember, the knowledge is that these are idols and they're nothing. Not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Verse eight, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. So this is Paul starting to address these two camps, okay? And right off the bat, I want to just point out that he's not like people in our culture today who would just say, hey, to each his own. Everybody's right. Everybody is right, right? You do you as long as you doing you doesn't infringe upon me doing me. We're cool, right? Like that's not his stance. Paul doesn't just say, hey, who cares? Just, you know, whatever. You do you. No, Paul makes it very clear that he has a position on whether meat eating was right or wrong. He makes it very clear, right? His position is that those who think that eating meat offered to idols, he calls them weak, he says, if you think that eating that meat is actually ingesting some sort of demonic spirit into you, that, that's a weak, you have a weak conscience. That's what he said. He said they're weak, that food is neutral. We're no, no worse off and we're no better off. It's just meat. So Paul isn't wishy-washy about what he thinks is true and right, okay? But he, he, he rather gives us criteria then that we should consider when determining whether something is or is not permissible for the Christian to partake in. So let me just run through these real quick. Essentially, there are three questions to ask about this. And the first is this, is it biblical? 
When trying to decide whether a Christian should partake or not partake in something, we got to ask, is it biblical or not? And Paul's really clear here. He believes that there is no biblical reason for us to abstain from meat sacrificed to idol idols. Praise God. Eat you some bacon, okay? Do some baby back ribs. Those are all clean. It's all okay. But you have to ask, is it biblical first? Uh, so in this question, is it biblical? We need to ask a couple of things real quick. First, we have to address what, what uh, theologians have called essentials and non-essentials. Okay, essentials and non-essentials. There is a quote uh, commonly attributed to St. Augustine. It's super unlikely that he actually said it, which happens with most quotes attributed to two guys who were around, you know, 1,500 plus years ago. Uh, but this is a good quote nonetheless, uh, whether it came from him or not. Here's the quote. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. That's a good quote. And, and, and what that means is that as believers, we are to seek unity, not uniformity. We're supposed to seek unity, not uniformity. Um, another theologian from a lot, well, actually now, okay, is a guy named Michael Bird. He actually gives us some helpful breakdowns of these essentials and non-essentials, and he gives them three levels of importance. Let me just run through these. These are really helpful, I thought. Um, first, there are matters that are essential for salvation, Matters, matters that are essential for salvation, okay? These are the things that we're learning in our Fathom Academy class, the theology class, okay? Uh, things like the doctrine of the Trinity. Don't mess with that, okay? Uh, Christology, who Jesus is, the way of salvation, the gospel message. These are matters that are essential matters that we need, by, by the way, uniformity in. We need to agree on these matters of essentialness, okay? Second, though, he says, there are matters that are important in the life of faith, but, but not essential for salvation. So he has a second tier of matters of importance. Uh, and and these, are, these are things that in the church we can agree over, but we can agree to disagree, right? Uh, I'll put things like our understanding of baptism in this. Do we dunk believers or do we sprinkle infants? Well, we do one thing and other churches do another thing and both are acceptable. They are important, but they are not essential for salvation. The way that we do the Lord's Supper, gender roles within the church, spiritual gifts, things like this, they're important, okay? They're not unimportant, but they're not essential for salvation. So we can agree to disagree on matters of importance, the third thing, though, is he, he brings up matters of indifference. Matters of indifference. These would fall into the category of non-essentials, okay? These are debatable things. You can have preferences and opinions on these things. And we're going to get into some of these things for our culture in just a minute. But the first question we always have to ask when dealing with something is, is it in the Bible? Is it biblical, okay? We're people of the book, we follow the Bible. We read the Bible. We study the Bible. We preach the Bible. We seek to live under the authority of God's word as laid out in the scriptures. And if it's in there, even if we don't like it, we submit to it. The Bible. So there are things that are always wrong in the Bible. Always. Murder. Always wrong. Stealing. Lying, sex outside of marriage, pornography, drunkenness, okay? I could go on and on. There are things that are always wrong as laid out in scripture. So that's where we start. 
Is it biblical? Paul says, eating meat sacrificed to idols, he doesn't see anything wrong with it biblically. Okay, that's the first question. The second question we should ask when determining if something is is, uh, permissible for a Christian to engage in is this, is it wise? Is it biblical? Yes, we ask that question. But then the second question is, is it wise? And, and maybe is it biblical? You could say is, is really the question is, can I do this thing? The wise, is it wise question is, should I do this thing? The can I do this thing is, is it biblical? The wise question is, should I do this thing? And that brings us back to verse eight in our passage where it mentions our consciences, Paul mentions our consciences. Now, a conscience is something we don't really talk about a whole lot anymore. It's like the Jiminy Cricket sort of thing. Uh, But a lot of people are now in our culture told to don't even consider your conscience. Don't trust your conscience. But really, our conscience is a gift from God. Our conscience is this type of moral intuition where you just, you know something is right or wrong before you can even articulate it. It just doesn't feel right. You ever felt that? It just doesn't, doesn't feel right. That's your conscience. It's like a sixth sense that God gives us. That's your conscience. And when the Bible it doesn't clearly speak about a subject, you have to start to lean into your conscience and begin to ask, is this thing wise for me to partake in? Now, that's what's happening in this passage. Okay? Uh, some people in their conscience were having problems with this food offered to idols. And they were bound by their conscience not to partake, but some were not. Some were not uh, held up with their conscience. So again, when asking, is it wise, we begin to uh, wise, we begin to move into this realm where some things are wrong for some people and not wrong for other people. This, this is where it gets complicated. This is where it gets complex. So we're going to talk about some examples in the modern church, and my goal is to equally offend everybody. That's my goal this morning. So if you feel yourself bristling at anything that I say, that's good, okay? Because these are things that are open to opinion. Um, So here we go. Uh, Is it appropriate for Christians to drink alcohol? Okay, this is a hotly debated topic, maybe a little less so today than than it was maybe 50 years ago, but this is something that people talk about. And when I first got saved in high school, I was 16 when I got saved, was not raised in the church, but I remember in my youth group hearing something like this. Hey, technically, we're free in Christ to drink alcohol, but that doesn't mean it's wise because so many people develop a problem with alcohol. So the wise thing is to abstain completely. That's what was taught in my youth group. They weren't anti-alcohol. They just believed that it was not wise for Christians to partake. And so you should abstain. But then on the other side of the argument, they'd chime in and they'd say, yeah, but, but Jesus drank wine. So it can't be inherently wrong. Right? And just because something can be abused doesn't mean we avoid it completely. Actually, the wiser approach is to live out a healthy, God-glorifying relationship with alcohol. So which is it? Which is it? Where is your conscience on this? It's appropriate to ask. You see, for, for some who struggle with alcohol in moderation, it is actually wrong to drink ever. It is. 
It's absolutely wrong. Uh, others, you'll be bound by your conscience, conscience to abstain from that, while others will imbibe responsibly. It's just, you gotta ask, is it wise? And you have to contextualize that for yourself. That one probably doesn't tick anybody off too bad. Let's do this next one. How about this one? A friend of mine, Joby Martin, who's a Acts 29 pastor in Florida, brought this one up and I laughed really hard and so I stole it. This is really good, okay? Uh, it's true. You wanna see some Christian moms just go crazy? You, you just ask them, what's the best way to educate your children? Right? Right, you just get you some homeschool mamas, okay? And you get you some public school mamas and you put them in a cage and just let them go at it. Fight of the century, right, okay? And the homeschool mama is gonna say something like this. Well, we homeschool our 12 kids, right? And you can send your child to, to that God-forsaken public school where they outlaw God, right? You can have them raised to believe that they crawled out of some primordial ooze and that grandpa was an ape and that they're gonna get hooked on drugs and porn, right? That's fine, but we love our kids, right? Frankly, we wanna just raise our kids in the Lord and that is done best at home. Then the public school mama is gonna reply, oh yeah, that's good, that's fine, okay? But there are some things that we want for our kid. Like we want him to grow up with something called social skills, right? Okay, and it's cool that your kids can like make their own clothes and you started a family bluegrass band, right? But, but we want our kids to learn a little something called math, okay? And not only that, but the Bible says, hey, we're to take the gospel into all the world, and what happens to the Christian witness if all the Christians move out of the public schools? Like, what happens? Then the third mama comes running in and she sends her kids to private school and they both are offended, right? They're just like, oh, you would pay for that, right? And all my homeschool jokes just fell a little flatter because of COVID-19, because we're all like, dang, homeschooling's hard, right? Like, that's the truth. But it's a matter of conscience. It is. It's a matter of wisdom. It's not black and white in the Bible. And so it's something for you to decide for your family, for yourself, for each kid, maybe. Everybody mad yet? No? Okay, here's, I hope you know I was joking. If you're a homeschool family, love you, okay? Um, I was kind of joking, just kind of. Um, here's the one that'll, that'll make you maybe get a little antsy, okay? Uh, let's talk politics for just a second. Everybody's just moaned if you didn't hear that on the live stream, Okay. Some believers are going to say things like this. A man like President Trump with such severe ethical and moral compromises should never get a Christian support. I don't care how good you think he has done at his job or what good he has done in policy. He has encouraged such bigotry and division in our country and to vote for him as a Christian is a violation of our witness and it outweighs any supposed political benefit. Others though, on the opposite side will say this. Well, listen, I'm not a fan of all that he says and does but I like him better than the alternatives. I will never support a vote for all, uh, that, that's alternative who supports abortion on demand, promotes restrictions on religious freedoms, is aggressive on countering Christian ideas on uh, morality in our country. So yeah, 
yet I will agree that he is flawed, but even though he is a flawed person, he is still the better choice. And frankly, didn't God use pagan kings in the Old Testament to actually help advance his people? God can use a broken person like President Trump as well. These are matters of conscience. These are matters of conscience. Christians can be pro-Trump or anti-Trump. It's true. And to ask, is it wise, is really the second step in determining these things for you. Here's where we get in trouble, though. We get in trouble when we elevate an issue of wisdom to an issue of biblical importance. Legalism is taking something that's a matter of conscience and elevating it to a command for all people. So we have to ask first, is it biblical? That's our first and go-to standard. Then we ask, is it wise? And then the third question is actually found in uh, some more passage, uh, more scripture that we have to read in our passage. Uh, Chapter eight, verses nine through 12. Here's what Paul says. After he just said, hey, we're no worse off or no better off if we eat meat. That's what he just said. Verse nine, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? If his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, if, uh, it, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Third question that you have to ask is this, is it loving? Is it loving? See, one of the biggest problems with Christian freedom is that we often slip into pride and we value our rights of freedom over loving our brothers and sisters. You say, I'm free to do this or that in Christ. And yes, you are. But the question is, what about your friend? Like, is it loving to them if you're to do this thing right here and right now? You have to ask that, is it loving? Listen, it is not loving to drink alcohol or to talk about drinking in front of somebody who is a recovering alcoholic. That's what Paul just called that. It's sin. Is it sin to drink? No. Is it sin to lead somebody to stumble? Absolutely. And he said, it's not just a sin against the weak. It's a sin against Christ. You sin against Jesus when you do that. That's what Paul just said. It's sin. Here's here's maybe a litmus test. Uh, If you want to know if you're loving towards others on some secondary issue, I just say go check out what you post on Facebook. I mean, for reals? You promoting unity within the body of Christ? Are you showing love to people who you disagree with? Like a bunch of, of, of us are dividing from other Christians because we, we disagree over, over a bunch of non-essential things. And maybe we need to just repent and take down some of our posts. 
I mean, I had to get off of Facebook because it's just so polarized. Yeah, the Bible might give you freedom. Yes, your conscience might give you freedom. Hey, your strength might even give you freedom. But loving your friend should cause you to lay aside your freedoms for their sake. We've talked about it. It's something we call deferential love, showing deferential love to others. Is it loving? You have to ask that question. This is why, hear me, this is why we're wearing masks right now. You get that? This is why we're wearing these things, okay? I know that everybody has opinions on the masks because this is our second week back and all I heard about this week was, hey, that was a great service. I just don't really like the mask thing, okay? And everybody says these things. Hey, well, I read an article this week saying that masks don't do anything. And then somebody else will say, hey, well, I read an article that said the exact opposite. Like everybody, listen, everybody has read an article, Okay, and I'm glad your college roommate has a blog that's really well-informed, apparently. But, it, but the article is not what I'm worried about. It's not what I'm concerned about, okay? I don't care what you think about masks. I seriously don't. I don't like to wear them. That's why I'm not. While I'm on stage, when I get off stage, I'll put it back on. I almost hyperventilated singing last week. I don't know whether masks do anything or don't do anything, but hear, hear me, I'm gonna lay down my right for my brother and my sister. Do masks do anything? I don't care. I don't care. It's an issue of love. So mask up and enjoy life. Let's end with this. Verse 13, the very last verse in Chapter eight, this one sums it up for me. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. I just shut the Bible because that's like, that closes the deal for me right there. That one closes the argument for me. Paul is so loving that he says, I'll never eat meat again. Anybody willing to change their diet permanently for a friend? Because I am not sure I would. Marcy had to go gluten-free for a while uh, while she, she was going through some food stuff. And I would leave the house and go to Italian restaurants and, and get calzones. Because I was like, I gotta have some gluten. I gotta have, and I'd come back and she's like, you smell like calzone, right? <laughs> like that's my wife, I love her, but I'm not sure I'm getting rid of dough, you know? Paul says, I'll change myself permanently. I'll never eat meat for my brother. Here's what Paul's not saying. Paul is not saying that you shouldn't have strong preferences or opinions. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that, that you should just roll over and not have a spine and never think for yourself about issues. He is saying you should have strong opinions. He called the, the, the non-meat eaters weak. He has an opinion, okay? And everything that we've talked about, they all matter. Alcohol matters, education, politics, even masks. Goodness, we can have these kinds of conversations. They matter and you should have an opinion on these things. That's fine. But after saying his conviction, Paul still embraces those who disagree as brothers and sisters and he does not look down on them. This is what the church needs to hear. This is what the church needs to hear. Can you accept those in close fellowship, those people who don't see public school, homeschool the same as you? Can you accept them? 
Can you accept into close fellowship, like, like a D group, a small group? Could you, could you accept somebody who answers the who we should vote for thing completely opposite of you? Can you sit and break bread and pray over and love one another even when you disagree on something that fundamental? Or does the moment that thing comes up in your D group, you just find it way difficult to accept one another and you bow up and you just, the hair on your neck stands up, you're ready to go. This is frankly why I rarely tell you about my opinions from up here. I rarely, t- I have an opinion on everything that I just talked about. But I rarely tell you my opinions because it's not that I don't have them. It's not that I'm afraid of telling you what I think. It's, it's that I want this church to be okay on both sides. It's because I want this church to be about the gospel, not over uniformity. You do not have to vote a certain way to be a part of this church. Goodness, half of our church would have to leave. I'm convinced of it if we started doing that. You should be willing to take every one of your opinions and convictions and lay it down at the altar of Christ and pursue loving unity with your brothers and sisters. This is how Jesus says we will, uh, people will know we are his followers. In the Gospel of John, he says this, they will know you are my followers by our love for one another. Not by us looking like one another, not even by us agreeing with one another, but by our love for one another. Fathom, let us be a church where our love for Christ and for each other is stronger than our disagreements over non-essential issues. Let's pray together. Yeah, Father, thank you for a passage that on the surface feels totally irrelevant as we talk about demon meat, but one that is so relevant as we find ourselves in the, in, in the middle of a cultural moment where division and disagreement is at what seems to be an all-time high. Lord, we, we do pray that, that we would know what is biblical and true. Lord, that we would decide by our consciences, informed by your Holy Spirit, what is wise for us to engage in and where we stand on certain issues. But Lord, would we, would we be compelled in our hearts just as your servant Paul was compelled in his heart to show deferential love to those around us who disagree with us? Lord, would you soften me to feel like I'd be willing to lay down my very rights to meat to a pulled pork sandwich for my brother, for my sister. God, I have a lot of way, long way to go in my heart on this. I pray for my brothers and sisters with us and online today that you would take us deeper into our love for each other and showing deferential love for the good of the church. Lord, thank you for this text. We, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.